Okay, welcome back to Grateful Gwenna. This is Full Story Part 2. Thank you for rejoining me. Um, I guess these free anchor podcasts have a segment limit of 60 minutes, and that one got up to 55 minutes, so thank you for staying with me and coming back, and hopefully my story can help inspire um, someone or... um, You can relate or something will just click with you. And I just hope and pray that um, if if it helps one person, I'll be happy. But um, I told you it was going to be a long one. So here we go. Welcome back. So I believe I left off just kind of um, talking about I had talked about, you know, living with my mom when I was growing up and how that was. And I had started to talk about um, when I would go and visit my dad and my stepmom. And I had shared in uh, Full Story Part 1 in that episode, I had shared about, um, you know, how my parents, you know, how I came to be and, you know, my parents' divorce. And then I kind of went on about their, their uh, both of their remarriages and um, had just shared a little bit. Um, about how the dynamics were on my mom's side um, when I was growing up and living with her and the struggles she had as a single mom and how that was for me living under her roof and um, being the oldest child and kind of having to take the role of a parent in the home and take care of my sister and um, really kind of parent my mother as well. And, And that went on for years, even into adulthood. And then I had just started to share about, um, you know, how it was for me when I would visit my dad's home with his wife and my new stepmother, um, his second wife at the time, and I had just started sharing about that. So that's a quick recap. Okay. Um, So one of the things I remember is, um, and I, I think this happened more when I was older, but... Um, I remember my stepmom and I didn't really get along like at all and she didn't like me at all. And I eventually learned that that was because I reminded her of my mother and my father would tell me that my mannerisms were a lot like my mother and that it reminded both him and my stepmother of my mother and she was really mean to me, honestly, emotionally, not physically. She never laid a hand on me, not once, but emotionally, it was brutal. (laughs) And I remember her son and I started getting close and I felt so alone. And when she would be mean to me, I would vent to him. And he was really good about listening. And my brother and I became very close um, when, when we were younger, like he was younger. And, um, I even have a picture still of him standing there leaning on a dresser, looking at me. And that was one of the times that he was listening to me and I was venting to him. And my brother was really very encouraging to me. Um, he didn't agree with how his mother was treating me at the time. And he was actually quite helpful in like, I kind of felt badly. I kind of felt guilty about like venting to him about his own mother. 
but it really helped me that he would listen to me also. And so I was very grateful for that. And he and I developed a very, very close, tight-knit relationship. And I would say that my brother, um, I, I really thought he was a Christian when I was growing up because of how he treated me and when he was growing up and when we were growing up together. And, you know, we would talk philosophically often, and I really enjoyed that. And I felt like he and I, we just got really close. And honestly, I really miss that relationship. Um, but we we were really super close back then. Um, and like, he would even give me some biblical advice sometimes and um, would listen to Christian music at first. And then as he got older, he started listening to alternative music and he started reading these books and just really weird off the wall out there kind of books. And um, eventually he um, eventually he, he began exploring other religions in like, um, my stepmother had us all going to a Methodist church with my father. So, um, but you know, my brother, like, I know he tried Mormonism. I know he tried witchcraft and I don't know what else he tried. Um, but that was, you know, when he was older and, and probably an adult and I am not sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if today, Today, I, I don't, like, we don't talk, sadly, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's, like, um, agnostic or something because he, he's just kind of run the gamut. And I remember I prayed for two years at one point. Um, he was a manager at a subway in a fairly small town, and I had prayed for two years for God to please send him someone at his job at Subway to, um, actually I didn't pray specifically at Subway, but I prayed for two years, please God, send someone to my brother to bring him back to Christianity and back to a relationship with you. And, um, that's another aspect I'll tell you about in a minute is my Christianity. But, um, shockingly, even though I shouldn't be shocked because God answers prayers in his timing. But after two years of me praying that prayer for my brother, my brother came to me one day and he said, Hey, I wanted to tell you something that happened to me. And he said, and, and my brother didn't know I was praying that. And he said that a Christian guy stopped into subway and just like spent all this time talking to him and answering his questions and explaining things to him and just discussing Christianity. And I don't think that it convinced my brother, but God answered my prayers and that seed was planted. Um, briefly, when I was 12 years old, um, I asked Jesus to be my savior and asked him to forgive my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness or whatever, you know, pray the sinner's prayer. And so I became a Christ follower at the age of 12. And um, with everything that I was going through on both sides of my family, God was the one thing I knew I could turn to. And somehow I instinctively knew 
that God loved me unconditionally and that the things I was going through were not his fault and that the things I was going through um, were because of people. The things I was going through with my parents and my siblings and everything else, those were because of people's choices and people's beliefs and people's actions and people's words. I knew it wasn't God's fault. Instinctively and intuitively, I just knew that God loved me and he didn't really want me to be treated like that. I don't know how I knew. I just knew deep inside me. And um, I believe it's because, you know, I was chosen by God. We're all chosen. He doesn't, we, we don't choose him. We can choose to accept or reject his free gift of eternal life. But he chooses us. Um, scripture says he predestined us according to his purpose. And that he works all things together for our good according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28 and 29. And, you know, if, you, if you've never read the Bible and you say, I don't believe in God, I would just encourage you if you're open to it, hopefully you are, but I would just encourage you to read the Bible before you decide to make a judgment on it. But I will tell you, there were many times and many years where God was literally all I had. And I learned very quickly, very difficultly, <laughs> and at a very young age, that God was someone I could rely on. And he was pretty much all I could rely on. I also could rely on my grandma. Um, she was my dad's mom. Not not my mom's mom that I talked about earlier, but my in the first episode. But my dad's mom. My dad's mom was my best friend. And she was literally my saving grace. She was kind of like God's angel for me here on earth. And she was my best friend. And she loved me unconditionally. I could tell my grandma absolutely anything. And... She was honestly the best example of a Christian I have ever witnessed in my entire life. And she didn't go around preaching about it. It was just how she treated me. Um, so I'm very grateful that God put my grandma in my life because, you know, with my mother, she was constantly screaming and cussing at me like all the time. I'm I'm not exaggerating. It was almost nonstop. And so I was just an emotional constant wreck around her all the time, constantly my nerves. I was just constantly on high alert, like almost nonstop. It was awful. That part was awful. I know my mother loved me, but yeah, it was rough. <laughs> and something I haven't shared with you yet is my father was an alcoholic. Um, I'm not around him to, enough to know if he still is. I wouldn't be surprised if he still is, but he definitely was when I was growing up. So my bro, my brother, my father would often get drunk, um, and he would get drunk and he would get extremely emotional and he is not normally an emotional person. <laughs> so I always knew when he was drunk, not just because he would slur his words, but because he would get really super emotional. And my dad doesn't like to, like, he doesn't like to discuss real things. You know, you don't talk about anything with him. He just likes to joke around a lot. And he's a huge flirt, like a huge flirt. But, I mean, he's always been super handsome. So I'm sure that's part of that, you know. But um, 
He definitely was an alcoholic. I believe he probably still is. I love my father. I love my mother. That has nothing to do with love. They're my parents, you know. Um, but he would get drunk quite often, actually. And he would find the least little fault in me to absolutely nitpick and would literally sit me down and lecture me for a minimum of two hours. That was the minimum. Until I felt like the world's most worthless person. And so here I had my mom constantly screaming and cussing at me living with her. And I felt like I could never do anything right with her no matter how, how hard, hard I tried. And then with my dad, we would sing songs and stuff in the car and that was great. But when he, And he would drive drunk often. One time he got stopped and I had to take over for him. It was so embarrassing. And I was on my way back from a trip where I had been chosen to represent my high school and the district in a trip to see Washington, D.C. and the government and all of its workings. And on the way back, he picked me up completely drunk and got stopped. And the cop made me drive the rest of the way home, even though I didn't have a license yet. So that was something, another experience. But anyway, my father would sit me down for two hours minimum and just lecture me about the stupidest thing that I allegedly had done wrong, you know, and I would feel like the world's most awful person at the end. So, so like I started to say on my mom's side, I'm constantly getting screamed at and cussed at usually about nothing or very little or someone else's thing, not mine, not something I'd done wrong, or she was just taking out her frustrations and anger on me, her frustrations with life. And then on my dad's side, I was constantly being lectured and belittled and treated like I'm just not worthy, like I'll never be good enough. So I was getting separately from both of my parents the same message, you'll never be good enough. You're an awful person. Nobody likes you. We love you because we have to. You were not a wanted child. We didn't want you. I mean, all those messages were playing in my head from, you know, the way my parents would talk to me and the things they would say and do to me. And then the abuse, the emotional and physical abuse of my step parents didn't help that. And so as you're probably beginning to see, I started developing a pattern of thinking everything was always all my fault and I would never be good enough. And my father constantly required perfection of me, especially when it came to school. And my father kind of trained me. This part I'm grateful for. My father kind of trained me and it's partially my personality also, but my father kind of trained me to rely on logic and not so much my emotions. And so to this day, God has enabled me with an amazing ability to separate my logic from my emotions most of the time, almost always. I'm still human and every once in a while I break down. Um, several years ago, I had a nervous breakdown, which is another story, but so I am human and I eventually get there too. But for the most part, I am able to separate my logic from my emotions. And sometimes I come across like I don't care, but it's not that I don't care at all because deep down I am super compassionate. Um, 
I am a prayer warrior and I'm constantly praying for people. Um, I don't tell them to their face, but like, you know, if I see a prayer request on Facebook, a lot of times I'll pray for it almost all the time. Um, you know, people, my, my friends know they can come to me privately with a prayer request. Um, obviously my, my former church friends know that as well. And I pray even for some of my students, if they share something, I'll pray privately for them as well. But, um, you know, I've just always been able to separate logic from emotions. And so I have compassion. It just doesn't always come across, I think. I think more than it used to as I get older. I think um, I've God's kind of softened me a little bit and softened not my heart because my heart's always been softened, but probably my approach and my maybe demeanor. So, yeah, Um so I kind of got myself all off track with that. But so that's kind of the message I that had been kind of ingrained and implanted in me to begin with. And then this, I didn't realize this at the time, but I have realized since I'm an adult and since I've now been in counseling off and on for years, mostly on, um, I used to blame myself for everything, whether it had anything to do with me or not. And I was constantly feeling guilty and, and feeling under condemnation. And I'm sure part of that was my parents in that, that came into play and my step parents, you know, and, um, it was really hard to watch. Oh, well, it was really hard to watch my parents, um, especially my dad and my stepmom, kind of replace me with her children over me. Um, I knew my dad still loved me, but it was pretty obvious to me that they were a whole lot more important than I was. And I could tell that my dad didn't want it to be that way. But like, and he stuck up for me and defended me to my stepmom on multiple occasions well, that made me feel even more guilty, even though I was grateful to him because, you know, I didn't want to come between him and his his wife. And I know how important it is for marriages. And I knew he'd already been divorced once and I didn't want that to happen for him again. Like, I don't know. But, um, and then the next big thing that happened um, my mother had a second daughter and she had this second daughter with a boyfriend of hers who I kid you not was in the mafia. And he told my mother that he was married and had a wife. And then my mother was his girlfriend. And well, that's another thing. Um, and that if he divorced his wife and married my mother, that the mafia would kill him. And that's why they couldn't get married. But they had a child together, and that's my youngest sister. And she is actually 15 years younger than me. And then my other siblings are seven and eight years younger than me. Um, that reminds me, I keep like, it. everything's kind of, that's why my book will be a lot more organized because I'll be able to move things around. Um, 
but as, as the Lord leads me, as the Holy Spirit leads me, um, what did I just say? Oh, my mother had my sister, my mother. One thing I forgot to mention living with her, growing up with her, um, she, she got divorced from her second husband, um, after the whole incident that I mentioned in my, in the first, uh, part one of this full story episode podcast. Um, and my mother constantly was in relationships and bringing men to the home. And I know one man, um, his name was Larry. He was a married truck driver from Florida And when he was passing through, he would stop by the house, go upstairs with my mom for a couple of hours, and then he would leave. So I don't know what that was all about, but it couldn't be good because he was a married man. And I remember she also had um, a quote-unquote boyfriend who lived with us for a while named Jack. And I remember he was also an alcoholic. Um, he, He seemed... He was actually a pretty decent guy, but I was kind of scared of him because, you know, he drank and I knew some people can be, you know, unsafe when they're drunk in my experience. And um, I remember my mother had to go bail him out of jail once because not that she had to, but she did. She went and bailed him out of jail once because he had been um, imprisoned with a DUI for drunk driving. But like my mother just, um, constantly had men in and out of our home and it wasn't a really healthy environment for children in that sense. Um, and it made me think, oh my gosh, you know, I had really good morals and like, you know, I was a virgin and I didn't want to have sex until I was married. And I wanted to be exactly the opposite of what I saw my mother doing, you know, um, not to disrespect her in any way, but it just wasn't a healthy home for children to be raised in, in that sense. And in the screaming and cussing sense, I mean, I know that my mother did her best. I'm not angry with her or my father. I don't blame them. Like I said, we're all human. We all make mistakes. I get that. And now that I'm a parent, I really know it even more. Um, So anyway, that was like a little kind of, but then, like I said, the next thing that happened was my mom had my baby sister. And at this time she had her boyfriend that was part of the mafia. Um, And then one day my mother tells me that we are moving out of Indiana. We're moving to Michigan. And she tells me, don't tell your father because it's against the divorce decree and we're not really supposed to move out of um, Indiana. So I keep my promise to my mother and I don't tell my father, but I'm scared that I'm never going to see my grandma, my dad's mom again, and she's my best friend. And I don't know what's going to happen because I know my mom doesn't have a lot of money. I know she wastes money on stupid stuff instead of paying bills, you know, all that kind of thing. So, and this is what I'm thinking at 15 years old, by the way. (laughs) So, um, I don't tell my dad, but I tell my grandma and I make my grandma promise not to tell my dad because I don't want to get in trouble. 
but I'm secretly hoping that my grandma will break her promise and tell my dad, and I assume that she will, but my grandma's a woman of her word, and she never tells my father. When my father found out, he was livid, not just with my mother, but with his mother, my grandmother, because she didn't tell him, but she kept her word. She was a woman of her word. But I just assumed she would break my promise, but I couldn't tell her that. I don't know if that, that was my thinking at the time. It probably doesn't make sense. You know, um, teenagers' brains are not fully developed, I've heard, until they're 25. So that's my, that's what I'm, you know, that's my excuse. That's what I'm thinking maybe happened with me. I just wasn't totally processing clearly, maybe. But that was my thought process. So I felt really guilty about that. And there was a huge rift riff in the relationship between my grandma and my dad after that, between him and his mother. And I felt so guilty, like that was all my fault. Now in hindsight and in retrospect, I realized that my grandma made that choice. That was her choice. And I was not responsible for her choice. She was a woman of her word and she kept her promise to me. And that's another reason I knew I could trust my grandma. Like I knew I could trust her because you know, she, she, she kept her word to me, but anyway, um, and that's part of why I trusted her so much is because I knew she was trustworthy. Um, so we moved to Michigan and I went to a small school and I absolutely loved it there. Absolutely loved it. I was top of my class. Um, I had been studying Spanish and I remember like I was a sophomore in a class of all juniors in a Spanish class. Boy, were those kids jealous of me because they hadn't learned anywhere near the amount of Spanish that I had because I had gone to a parochial or a private school before that. And so the Spanish program there was really super high and um, I've just been telling you the background of like my home environment, but where I excelled during all this time was in school, in high school. And um, I had tested as a freshman in high school, in the private school, I took the national Spanish exam. I was blessed with the opportunity to take the national Spanish exam. And I tested sixth in my private school, which is like really high caliber of students and 14th in the nation as a freshman in high school in the Spanish exam. I don't know if you know anything, but that's really, really, really good. <laughs> so I was very proud of that. So when I went, when we moved to Michigan and I went to this small school, those kids weren't in a private school, it was a public school. And so they hadn't learned anywhere near what I had learned. And so they were really jealous of me, but there was also this high amount of respect. And at that school, it was the first time I felt like I could totally be myself anywhere. And I loved Michigan, man. I loved where I was there. And I remember my neighbor, um, he was the soccer star of the school. And he and I, we used to kick the soccer ball around in the backyard. And he would just laugh at me because... I was nowhere near as good. Like, I wasn't that good at all. Like, I wasn't good at all. But I loved it, and I was competitive, and I would get so mad, and he would just laugh at me. It was cute. We were friends, nothing more, you know? And I made friends there, and I was accepted and respected for who I was. And 
I just loved it there. And I was super happy there for the first time in my life. And we were staying with a couple. Thankfully, they were Christians that my mother and her boyfriend had met a month before we moved to Michigan. They had the cutest little doggy named Coco. <laughs> but um, so uh, then one day suddenly we're living in Michigan and I'm so happy and everything's going really well. And my mother comes and talks to me and says, we're moving out of state again, but I can't tell you where. But don't tell your father. And I'm like. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Now what? I'm so happy in Michigan. I tried to appeal to my mother. I told her I'm really happy in Michigan. Can we please not move? Well, I'm sorry. I skipped a whole entire thing. I apologize. Let me back up just a second. So I'm all happy in Michigan and everything. And then my um, my mother informs me, hey, my boyfriend and I, we're going on vacation for two weeks. You and your sister are going to stay here with this couple we met a month ago. Take care of your sister. She was eight. I was 15. She's like, take care of your sister. We'll be back in two weeks. Okay, cool, whatever. Like, I really didn't want her to go, but I thought, okay, it's only going to be two weeks. I can survive. I can handle two weeks. Well, my mother would call every week and tell me it's going to be another week. It's going to be a little longer. It's going to be at least another week. Long story short, they ended up being gone for two months. They left my eight-year-old sister and myself, I was 15 at the time, living with a couple. Thank God they were Christians. I'm so grateful for them. I'd like to go see them and try to reconnect with them someday. Um, but they left us with a couple they had known one month before we moved. Complete strangers. Like, who does that? What the heck were you thinking? That is not being a parent. I'm sorry. You know, like anyway. And so my mother comes now. Now we're getting back to my mother comes. And like I said earlier, informs me that we're moving out of state. Don't tell my dad. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm I'm happy here. Like, what do you mean? You know? And I knew it was going to cause problems with my dad and my grandma again, or at least I assumed it was, you know, that's going to bring that whole riff back up to the surface, you know, and I didn't want my dad or my grandma to suffer through that again and go through that again. She wouldn't, she absolutely refused to tell me where we were going. So I had no idea where we were going and I couldn't appeal to her. So finally, I was like, can I just stay here by myself? And she's like, no, I need you. I need you to babysit your sister. I need you to take care of your sister. I mean, basically, I was my mom's slave, kind of. <laughs> but not like, you know, not like in a derogatory way. Not like, you know, I'm, I mean, I did most of the cleaning <laughs> and, you know, stuff like that. But and babysitting, I took care of my sister probably way more than she did. So she didn't want to lose me. I was a valuable asset, you know. <laughs> At least I had some value, right? <laughs> anyway, um, so I tried to convince her to let me stay there. Of course, the answer was no. So I finally got really angry. And I was like, Mom, I'm sick of you moving us every six months. 
I finally have a best friend. Her name's Katie, and I promised her I would never leave her. Katie was terrified that we were going to move again because she knew that my mom leaved me, moved us almost every six months or more. And I had, she's like, don't ever leave me. And I got Katie to trust me because I told her I would never leave her. And here we were leaving Katie too. It wasn't my fault. And Katie understood that, but she was still angry. And I understood I would have been angry too because I had made her a promise I couldn't keep. And it was because of my mom moving us out of state again. And so, um, I told, I got very angry with my mother and I told her that I'm going to fight you all the way on this. And my mother said, basically, we're done discussing this. I've told you what's going to happen. I'm going to the grocery. And she says she told me not to leave. I don't remember her saying that. And, um, I had told her I'm going to fight you on this. And I don't think she believed or realized how serious I was on that. Um, because I, I just was so tired of her just, I mean, she had broken the law when she broke the divorce decree and moved us out of Indiana to Michigan. And um, so it was pretty serious. And I just was so tired of her like moving us everywhere, screaming and cussing at me, taking everything out on me, spending money unnecessarily, you know, um, the toilet was literally black when I ran my fingertips over it. So I would clean, you know, I would clean the bathroom. I would do the dishes. I mean, I was basically the parent, really. I mean, she would work outside the home and I'm sure she was tired. I get that. But there was just so much and it was a lot for me, you know, from the time I was seven when my sister was born all the way to the time I was 15. And then we had this other little child who was about three months old when all, no way, she was pregnant when all this happened. That's right. She was pregnant when all this happened. Um, or was she three months? No, I think she was, I don't, it's that kind of part's kind of a blur, honestly. But, um, so anyway, told my mother, I'm going to fight you on this. I called my grandma, because I wanted to go live with my grandma. But of course, after the first riff, the first thing my grandma does is call my dad and let him know, because I don't blame her now. She's not going to go through that with him again. She didn't say that, but that would be, you know, what I would imagine. And so my father was with his new wife visiting her family in Wisconsin at the time. So he dropped everything and drove to Michigan got emergency, picked me up, offered to take my sister because he knew how close we were, even though she wasn't his child, which I have a ton of respect for my dad for doing that. And then he um, took me to his lawyer and got emergency custody of me. And I explained everything that happened to both my father and his lawyer. And I remember his lawyer making me explain my story twice. And then I remember hearing his lawyer tell my dad, she's telling the truth. She told the story the exact same way, word for word, twice. Nothing changed. She's definitely telling the truth. And then my father's lawyer came to me and said, Gwenna, 
Honey, do you understand that what your mother did to you and your sister is called abandonment in a court of law? And I'm like, no. (laughs) And um, I found out that my mother could have gone to jail for what she did. I don't think my mother to this day realizes how serious what she did was. Then my lawyer proceeds to tell me that what my my dad's lawyer proceeds to tell me that what my mother did those two months while she was gone with her boyfriend was that they drove around collecting down payments for a fake patio enclosure business and then skipped town. What my mother ended up doing was moving back to Indiana, but she never told me that's where she was going because she didn't want my father to find out. For whatever reason, I don't know. I mean, that's between her and God, you know? Um, And by the way, my mother now uh, claims to be a Christian, and there's a lot of fruit that shows that she is. There's also a lot of actions that show that maybe she's not. So I don't know. It's not for me to judge, but she definitely wasn't doing, wasn't a Christian when I was growing up with her, um, when I was living with her. So anyway, my dad gets emergency custody of me. The lawyer tells me that my mother abandoned us, you know, um, and I realized that from the lawyer talking to me, I realized that my dad could easily press charges against my mother and she could be in jail. Um, So again, I have respect for my father because he did not press charges against charges against my mother. He did not put her in jail and he very easily could have. Um, Because I think because my guess is because he knew she needed to still take care of my sister and knowing me, I don't recall, but I probably begged him not to knowing me because I didn't want my sister to be alone without her. And my sister, when my dad asked her if she wanted to come with me, we were crying because we were very close, but she said no because she wanted to stay with mommy. You know, of course, like she was seven years younger. She was a lot closer to my mom than I was, even though I was the one who took care of her most of the time, but that's still her mother, you know? So I totally get that. I don't fault my sister at all for that. Um, And that was, you know, she was a lot younger. That wasn't, you know, so that was when she was younger, but, um, yeah, so that's how that happened, (coughs) and I was 15 at the time, so I didn't get to stay with Michigan, and I had to go live with my father and my stepmother, and I was resentful because I wanted to live with my grandma, not my father and my stepmother, but I don't think I really said a whole lot to my dad about it because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Do you notice a pattern here, how I'm always trying to put my parents and their feelings before my own? It's something I didn't realize. I'm going to take a sip of water real quick. So from a young age, I've had a caring, nurturing nature, and I've tried to take care of my parents and my siblings and others before myself, except for venting to my brother about my stepmother. Um, So anyway, at 15 years old, I'm completely displaced out of my home. I'm an angry teenager, angry at my mother 
for everything that's happened. Angry that I can't move in with my grandma, who's my best friend. Angry that I'm being forced to move in with my father and my stepmother, who hates me. My stepmother, who I remind her of my mother. It was really awkward, and I really tried my best. And that's where the abu emotional abuse of my stepmother really kicked in <laughs> when I moved in with them. My stepmother had her own two children, obviously my brother and my sister, but she was not used to a teenager living in her home. That's for darn sure. <laughs> and I was a really good teenager, but I had developed a little bit of a smart mouth. And I was very angry and resentful of the things that had been happening to me. And um, I told you I got saved when I was 12 and Jesus was my best friend for about a year. And then I kind of backslid and kind of fell away. And then when I was like a year later, I was like really missing and lamenting and regretting that, you know, I hadn't realized how close I was to Jesus before. And he had been my best friend. And of course, then my grandma after Jesus. So, um... I moved in with my dad and my stepmom, and that was an experience in itself. Um, I went from a private high school where I was one of the smartest kids, but also one of the poorest kids, and testing so high on the national Spanish exam, like I told you, to living in Michigan and being at the top of that sophomore or junior public school class as a sophomore and being way ahead of them in Spanish um, and being super happy in Michigan and loving my life there to um, living with my father and my stepmother who hated me and going to a small rural public high school and being um, shoved in with the cheerleaders and the jocks because and the popular kids. Be, which is something I was completely out of my element because in the private school, I was most definitely not with the popular kids or the cheerleaders or the jocks. In fact, those were the kids that made fun of me. Those were the kids that kind of bullied me a little bit, you know? So suddenly I'm stuck in a group because my dad and stepmom's friends um, their kids were cheerleaders and jocks and popular kids at the high school. So that's who I got introduced to. So it was very awkward. And I remember feeling very awkward at first for the most part. I do have a really super good memory too, though, of my first day at the new rural public high school. And it was how I made my best friend. And I'm going to say a bad word so I'm just kind of warning you in advance. Remember, I was backslidden back then. Um, and so I was not saying I never cuss now, but I try not to. So um, this is a good memory real quickly. Um, I have a couple of memories, but my first day of high school, I'm at my locker and I'm about to go to class and this girl runs up. She's freaking out. She's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so late. Ah, and she's like freaking out. And she looks at me. I've never met her before. And she goes, how do I look? And I looked at her and I said, you look like shit. And she goes, oh, my God, really? Thank you so much. I'll go to the bathroom before I go to class. Thank you. And we were just like best friends after that. <laughs> that was a fun memory. I also remember my first day in high school. 
I think right before that happened, a kid came up to me and offered me drugs. And I was like, for a second, I was like terrified, but I knew I couldn't show fear. So I looked at the kid and I said, if you walk away right now and never talk to me again, I will not report you to the cops. And I never had another problem after that. <laughs> um, but anyway, so moving in with my dad and my stepmom was most definitely challenging. And I think that's when my brother and I got really, really close. Like I said, he would let me vent to him about how my stepmother was treating me. And he didn't agree with her. He would agree with me to my face. But it was seemingly small, stupid stuff, but it really affected me. For example, I was trying really hard to help her, but I did things differently than she did. I wasn't raised in her home. I didn't know her ways. So I was really trying to help her. And I would do things like I would put the dishes, the dirty dishes in the dishwasher, rinse the dishes and put them in the dishwasher. And all she would ever do was complain about anything I did because it wasn't done her way. And I remember I just finally one day had had it you know, and she would complain about, you know, well, that's don't, if you can't do the dishes right, then don't do them at all. And she would move all the dishes in the dishwasher <laughs> because it had to be done her way. And I would try to help her do laundry. And she would tell me I didn't fold the towels right, or that's not how I fold the socks or da, 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 da. And I got fed up one day so badly. I looked at her and I said, fine, you know what? Do it yourself. I'm never helping you again. And I never did. And then, you know, after a while, like at Christmas and holidays, I would try to help her prepare food and stuff or clean or whatever she needed. She would not let me. I wasn't good enough to help her. She would only allow her own children to help her. And that carried through to holidays and adulthood. She always treated me like a guest and not like part of the family. Well, you don't know how to do it. They're here more and they know how to do it. Wow. You know? And she always treated me like I wasn't part of the family. She made it very clear where my place was. And she told me one day, when you turn 18, you're out of here. And she told me that I was a mouthy 15-year-old, but she just wasn't compassionate with me at all. Like, she didn't even try to understand where I was coming from. It was really rough. So... The day after I graduated high school, I was still 17, and I told my dad I was leaving, and I was moving in with my grandma, my best friend, his mom, um, for the summer before I went to college because I wasn't giving my stepmother an opportunity to kick me out of the home. And my dad kind of tried to talk me out of it a little bit, made it clear that he wanted me there. I said, I'm sorry, dad, but I can't live with her anymore. And I don't want to be coming between the two of you anymore. Something to that effect. And my dad let me go. He was very kind. And then I remember my heater hose on my car busted as I was driving away. And I had to call my dad for help. And bless his heart, he came and helped me fix my heater hose so I could drive the rest of the way to my grandma's house. So um, later in later years, my sister on my dad's side asked me to counsel with her. And, I'd, and I don't know my youngest sister at all, 
but he asked me to counsel with her. She asked me to counsel with her, with her counselor. And I went there and her counselor asked me to tell her my side of the story growing up. My dad ended up paying for me to go to Spain and learn and become fluent in Spanish, which was part of the divorce decree. But my stepmother wasn't happy about it at all. And I discovered during that counseling appointment, unbeknownst to me, my brother and sister on my dad's side were super jealous of me that they paid for that. And I never knew that. I saw, what I saw was that my stepmother, when she got me a car when I was 16 years old, it was a 74 Ford Mustang, white with a black top, that you could literally see through the floor to the ground because it was so rusted out. But when she got her kids a car, my brother got my grandma's old car, but my sister got bought a brand new car. And I was told I wasn't good enough for a brand new car. Not in those exact words, but that was the idea. Basically, my stepmother had told me, we're not spending that much money for a new car on a teenager. But when her, her little girl got a car, they spent that much money on a new car for a teenager. It's whatever. The other thing that I remember that stood out that happened with my stepmom was a friend of mine at the small rural high school asked me for a favor. He said, there's a guy who likes you. He has a crush on you and he wants to meet you. And I was working at a small car hop restaurant at the time in our little small town. And so he asked me, when you get off of your shift, which I got off at 10 o'clock, he's like, would you meet with him and just talk to him for like maybe an hour or just for a little bit? So I agreed to it finally. I didn't I wasn't a fan at first. I wasn't attracted to this guy. I wasn't interested in this guy or anything, but he seemed like a nice guy. He seemed trustworthy and I wasn't dating anyone. Like I was like Miss Goody Two Shoes was literally the nickname that those kids at that high school gave me. And I had a girl that was tripping out on drugs, strung out one time, pinned me up against a locker at that high school. And there was a song that says, don't drink, don't Drink, don't smoke, what do you do? And she sang that song to me. And it was very intimidating. And I just froze. And then eventually she just left. <laughs> it was really weird. But I could tell she was like jealous of me. But I don't know why. I got along with pretty much everybody at that high school. Because I just learned to adapt and, and be kind to everyone. Whether I felt like I fit, fit in there or not. And I think a lot of that is because I came from, you know, the poor background with my mom. And then I was just dumped in with the popular kids at that school. So I got along with pretty much everybody. And I found my crowd in the journalists there because I was a journalist. But anyway, um, where was I going? I kind of interrupted myself and got distracted. And it's almost time's up again, but I'm almost done. But like, oh, the counseling session with my sister, when I got done sharing my side of the story, my sister's jaw was just like dropped open almost the entire time I was talking. She's like, wow, Gwena, I had no idea that you went through all that. We didn't know half of that. And um, I didn't want to share it first, but I finally did. And the counselor looked at me and I'll never forget what she said. Gwena, you have been scapegoated on both sides of your family. Your whole family has scapegoated you all your life on both sides which basically means that they blamed me for everything. 
And I blamed myself for everything too. So can you see how I was conditioned to believe and accept that everything was always all my fault, that I was a horrible person, that I wasn't worthy of love, that I was unwanted. These were the messages that were being ingrained in me. One time my father said to me, don't start. And I didn't even do or say anything. I asked a very innocent question. Another time my mother's mother said to my ex-husband, that's just Gwenna. These horrible things were said about and to me that shaped how I thought about myself. I definitely did not have God's view of who I truly am, of who God created me to be. And that's why I believe I was so easily able to marry into abuse because I had developed those thoughts about myself from the way that my parents treated me the way that my siblings treated me. I could be a thousand miles away and somebody would blame me for something and I had no clue what was going on. Some of it was my fault, okay? Some of it was my fault. But the majority of it had literally absolutely nothing to do with me. I'm taking a sip of water. So in hindsight and in retrospect, I can see and hopefully you can see so that hopefully it helps you start opening your eyes to how maybe you could have, I'm not saying it's your fault, but how we could have maybe let uh, um, abusive situations into our lives or married into abuse or gotten into an abusive relationship because we are so used to the dynamics of abuse, of emotional and or physical abuse. And so those messages I had received and had been planted in my mind about you're never good enough. You'll never be good enough. Nothing you ever do is ever good enough. I forgot one thing. When I was in high school, if I got an A, my father would literally ground me because it wasn't an A+. And he would tell me, I know you're capable of more than that. And he was right. I was smart enough. I was capable of more than that. However... Like, that's a little much, <laughs> you know, and it trained me to be a perfectionist. And to this day, I struggle with not being super hard on myself. Like, I have compassion for others. I'll give grace to my students. I'll give grace to my relationships. I'll give grace to my family members. But I have a hard time giving grace to myself. I'm still working at on that at 52 years old, because it was literally so ingrained in my mind and in my psyche and in my being. So I finally got to the point, yay, but I wanted to share all of that. So you could kind of, well, I didn't want to, I felt led to share all that because I think it kind of gives you um, kind of a, an idea of some of the things that caused me to think the way I did and the way I had for years. And I'm still healing from that. God is still healing me, slowly healing me from that. Um, I've been reading a book by Joyce Meyer called Uniquely Authentically You. And something that really struck me and hit home for me was she says, enjoy who God created you to be. Enjoy who God created you to be. That was a totally foreign concept to me. I've never enjoyed who God created me to be. I've always looked at my own faults. 
I've always blamed myself for everything. I'm really super hard on myself. And then I would get angry and resentful because people were blaming me for stuff that had nothing to do with me. (laughs) And then I would get angry and resentful because I bought into it. And then I would get angry and resentful because, you know, I was upset about it. And just, it was like this snowball of a path. And that is what allowed me to think that I didn't deserve better than abuse. It wasn't like a conscious thought, but it was, I believe, in the back of my mind, like in my conscious, in my psyche or whatever you want to call it. And it led me to believe that I didn't deserve better than what I was getting. But I know now that God does not want any of us to be abused. In fact, the Bible says that he delights in us. God loves us. He doesn't want these bad things that are happening to us for us. He doesn't want bad things for us. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says um, what I said, what I quoted earlier about um, all things according to his purpose for our good. He works all things for our good according to his purpose. And Jeremiah 29, 11 talks about, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God does not want us to be abused. God does not want you to be abused. God does not want me to be abused. And I'm rushing because I have two minutes left. (laughs) So um, thank you for listening to my story. I pray and hope, I hope and pray it has blessed you. Um, I hope it helps shed some light on um, not only why maybe I married into abuse, but maybe why you or someone you love or someone you know um, tolerates things the way they do. But know that you are worthy of love. You are worthy of respect. God loves you. God wants that for you. God wants the best for you. Thank you. Stay safe. And if you're not in a safe situation, please leave 1-800-799-SAFE. Again, is the domestic violence hotline. Thank you. God bless you. Please be safe. I'm praying for you. I love you. But more importantly, Jesus loves you more. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. God bless you.